Good morning, friends. It is so good to be here together. And I want to encourage you that um, if you have a sheet of paper in front of you, you might like to take it out because there's some blanks there. And as is our custom, you can fill in the blanks as they appear on the screen. That's a great thing for oldies and youngies together to keep following along with the sermon. Uh, we, uh, one of our creeds in our church is, if you can't hear crying, the church is dying. So we love to hear the bubs making noise. We love to hear the grown-ups crying as well. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, feel no pressure if you have a little bub who's making a bit more noise than normal. Don't feel you need to race them outside. Or you can, they can be with us or you can take over the hall, whatever it is that makes you most comfortable. But we are all in this all together. And what an important day it is. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have the promises of you that, that death, death is destroyed because of Good Friday. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'd help us to understand this more clearly as we come to your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. The problem with formal religion is that it can dehumanise our faith. Uh, for some of you, this might be your 20th or 50th or 80th Good Friday, and in a sense, there's there's nothing really different compared to the other ones. We go through the motions each year, the, the earth goes around the sun, and when it's Good Friday, well, we, we do the Good Friday stuff again. But I think for our church, this Good Friday is a little bit different. We've devoted ourselves to carefully studying every single verse of every single chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And since last winter, we've looked at one chapter every week, except in holidays. And, and so we have carefully examined every sentence of the history of the life of Jesus, from his birth to, well, to today. And today we are faced with the tragic events that sit at the heart of world history. And the death of Jesus seems, I think, even more tragic for us. Because we have taken the journey together, sentence after sentence, through all the remarkable days of his life. And yet it's called Good Friday, which is weird, isn't it? My scripture kids in Jamboree Public thought it was weird when I talked about it the other day and said, you know, it's the day Jesus died, it's called Good Friday. It's like, huh? How could Good Friday possibly be good? Well, as we look today at Matthew chapter 27, we will see why the day is good. And I've got to say, if you've been following Jesus for a while, then it is really good that you're here with us. But if you're new to our church, maybe you're just checking out Christianity, then I'm praying that today will be a day when you'll learn more about why Good Friday can be good for you. And I'm particularly praying that for you, if you're in that situation, that today you might find out how to follow Jesus and why it matters. Chapter 27 begins with verse 1. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Jesus has been captured by the Jewish leaders and they've just decided he's guilty of blasphemy, of, of saying lies about God. 
And so now they start the process of getting him killed for his convictions. And so verse 2, then they bound him, led him away and took him to Pilate, to the Roman governor. The Jews have handed Jesus over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to the nations. They would do the dirty work of the Jewish leaders. Just how the Gentiles did the work of punishing God's people in exile. It is horrible. And it is tragic. But now there's a brief pause as we see the remorse of Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realised that Jesus had been condemned to die... He was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and elders. Judas was one of Jesus' closest 12 friends, but now he is filled with remorse for betraying Jesus to the Jewish leaders. He's woken up to himself and he's realised that he's committed a great sin. And so... Verse 4, he says to those Jewish leaders, I have sinned for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. Judas knew that Jesus was innocent. I mean, how could he not? He'd spent years with him. He'd watched his steps. He'd heard his words. He'd shared his life. And he knows as much as anyone else that Jesus is the only person who is truly innocent. And as he wakes up to himself and his wicked act, verse 5, he threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and he hanged himself. Judas couldn't live with his sin, so he killed himself. That's the first death we hear of on Good Friday but it won't be the last. But what will the Jewish leaders do with the money that Judas threw in the temple? Verse 6, the leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. Uh, And after some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the Field of Blood. Those Jewish leaders used the blood money to buy a cemetery for foreigners. And even though these circumstances seem so weird and unexpected, it turns out they were all according to plan. Verse 9, this fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed We have seen over and over and over again throughout Matthew's Gospel that everything was happening according to plan. It is all plan A. Even the betrayal by Judas and his suicide and the purchase of the field of blood, which means that if it's plan A, then it's good. That's why it's Good Friday. Well, now Jesus stands before the Roman ruler, verse 11. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. 
If Jesus is the king of the Jews, it'll be worrying to the Roman rulers because they don't want some sort of political instability in the region. But more than that, if Jesus thinks he's the king of the Jews, but the Jews reject him, then it's going to cause even more political instability. But regardless, Jesus acknowledges to the Roman ruler that he is the king. He says, you have said it. But Jesus is not as forthcoming when the Jewish leaders question him. Verse 12, when the leading priests and elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges that they're bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Nothing. Blank face. Not a word. In fact, it's exactly what the Bible said 700 years before. We had it in one of our earlier readings. This is said about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus calmly surrendered to his sentence as he walked closer and closer to his death. But then another really unusual thing happened. Verse 15. It was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Pilate, the Roman governor, had an annual power move. He'd show his mercy to a prisoner. And it seems that this strange tradition might have had an extra benefit this year for Pilate because he thought he might use it to shift the blame from himself to the crowd. He thought he could get others to take the responsibility for the death of Jesus. So he asks them whether they'd like Jesus or Barabbas to be released. But as he does so, we're reminded again of something very important about Jesus. Verse 19, just, as, just then as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message, leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Just as he's about to pronounce his judgment, Pilate's wife tells him about her nightmare and the take-home message as he's about to pronounce his judgment is, this guy is innocent. The Jewish leaders heard from Judas that Jesus is innocent. The disciples, of course, know that Jesus is innocent. And now the Roman ruler is given this special insight from his wife, from a dream, that Jesus is innocent. This is very important to realise as we witness this slow-moving train wreck of tragedy. Jesus is innocent. So many people knew that Jesus was innocent. Jesus is truly good. 
But as Pilate tries to get the crowd to free Jesus, the Jews take matters into their own hands. Verse 20. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas, release Barabbas. They're revved up by the Jews to release Barabbas, a notorious criminal. But this troubles Pilate, verse 22. Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him. I mean, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent and he wants the crowd to feel the full weight of their decision. But it's not going so well for Pilate. Because verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent. There's that word again. I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. Pilate washes his own hands in the hope that this water might somehow take away the guilt of the decision to execute Jesus. Pilate wants to wash his hands of his guilt. The metaphorical blood on his hands is washed with literal water as, he, as if he thinks that will genuinely fix the problem. But it shows that he wants to be clean of the guilt of the death of Jesus. But the crowd doesn't share his concern. Verse 25, And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. The original is actually a little bit more literal and it uses the word blood. In, in the NIV, it's translated... When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. It's, it's profoundly ironic, don't you think? They want the blood of Jesus to be on them and their guilt and their children. But we know what happens when you have the blood of the Lamb. There's an irony there that they don't get. But we do. That Jesus would die and his blood would be for them as well. On them and their children. Not the blood of guilt, but the blood of atonement. Well, now Pilate does as the crowd wants, verse 26. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Jesus' destiny is sealed. And now we can do nothing but stand back and watch his humiliating death 
which begins here from verse 37, 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out to the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter and then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and they grabbed the stick out of his hand and struck him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. And then they led him away to be crucified. There was physical pain as they hit his head with that stick. But the humiliation is even more vicious. They tease and bully and mock him because he claims to be a king. Right now he looks nothing like a king, does he? And that's why they abuse him. But the irony is that when they say, Hail, King of the Jews, they're actually speaking the truth. And then they lead him away to be crucified. And starting with his journey to the place where he would be crucified, we read verse 32 that along the way they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they'd nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. What have the Romans ever done for us? They have discovered and created the most brutal form of torture you could imagine. Crucifixion. Designed to not only inflict maximum prolonged pain on its victims, it was designed to humiliate beyond imagination. And with it, more irony came. Verse 37, a sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was written in malice, but every word was true. But he wasn't alone in his execution, verse 38. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Uh, Matthew doesn't record anything about these other two criminals, but Luke does. And it's a wonderful story of deathbed conversion, which you really must read if you haven't before. But Matthew just gives us the bare facts. Although he does record this conversation with the crowd, Verse 39 and 40, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
the random crowd members just yell abuse. And fair enough, I mean, what a loser. Came promising all these things, said all these big things, had this band of merry, band of merry men around him, and where are they? And here he is. What a loser. The crowd yells abuse. I mean, of course, they completely missed the point of what Jesus meant when he said he'd rebuild the temple in three days because, as we'll see on Sunday, he does just that, but not in the way they expected. And nor does he destroy the temple in the way they expected. But then it goes from the random crowd to the, to the leaders of the people of Israel. To the leaders of the people of Israel. The leading priests, verse 41, the teachers of religious law and the elders, they also mocked Jesus. Ha, he saved others, they scoffed. But he can't save himself. Oh, so he's the king of Israel, is he? Ha, let him come down from the cross right now. Oh, and then we will believe in him. He trusted God. So let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Ha. In fact, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Mocking. Ridicule. That is what these particular leaders of God's people will be known for. They are the ones who mocked their king. How tragic. How stupid. Because they think it would be good if Jesus came down from the cross. But we know that he actually needed to stay on the cross to achieve his mission. But in their taunts, they actually do speak the truth. For they say that he saved others, but he can't save himself. And that's actually how it works. It's only by not saving himself. It's only by not saving himself that he can save others. It's by giving his life that he can give life to others. Uh, we might think that the comments of the leading priests, the teachers of the law and the elders were just mean, but actually they were really stupid. And when they stand before Jesus on judgment day, as they will, they'll realise how stupid they really were. It's so tragic. But then as they mock Jesus for being nothing but a deluded revolutionary, this happens, verse 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The creator of the universe now shows that this is no ordinary execution. The promised end time events are now starting to be revealed. This is the moment Jesus talked about. And then after three hours of darkness everywhere, this happens. Verse 46, about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leba sabachthani, which means, 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He cries out the words from Psalm 22 as he suffers the anger of God. Right here, right now, Jesus experiences the punishment that we deserve. The punishment for rejecting God, even though he made us and provides for us. You know, like tenants who trash their rental property, we have all rejected our loving ruler. And now all the punishment for us is on Jesus. And whilst it appears from this that that Jesus is abandoned by God, the, the rest of that psalm, Psalm 22, shows, in fact, as he appropriates that psalm for himself, that, that he has never lost his trust in God, even though he feels his anger. But as he cries out, he's misheard. Verse 47, some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. You know, Eli, Eli, Elijah, that's kind of what they must have heard there. So one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see where the Elijah comes to save him. Was that a moment of mockery? Or maybe were they just starting to think, this has all got a bit of a weirdness to it. I don't know, is Elijah going to pop out and do something? I don't know. But as this as they were waiting, this happened, verse 50. Jesus shouted out again. And he released his spirit. That's the moment. The moment when Jesus died. He didn't come down from the cross. God didn't rescue him. He suffered death. But from this moment, things would never be the same. And we see the first hints of this in the next verse from Psalm 51a. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you blink, you will miss this very important point that happens at that very important moment. But it's very significant because the, the curtain in the temple was used to separate people from the presence of God. It was vital because it acted kind of like a, a, a big barrier of protection to protect people from God's mighty presence. And it was vital in order for the temple to function as this place where, they, where, where sin was dealt with. It was the place where animals were sacrificed to take away sin. But what happens here? The temple is now made redundant. The curtain's ripped. The heart of the temple is ripped out. Now it's just a pretty stone museum. And that is because the death of Jesus replaced the temple. Ironically, Jesus has just destroyed the temple. But not as they expected it. But then we see some more end times stuff unfolding before our eyes from verse 51b. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. 
And they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. That's weird. And it's cool. It's like death has been conquered and it's like, whoa, hang on, they're already out. Right there at that very moment. It's dark. There's earthquakes. And there's dead bodies that are not dead anymore running around and saying hello to people in Jerusalem. It is extraordinary. A whole bunch of people just couldn't get it. But you know who did get it? Verse 54. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, listen to this, this man truly was the son of God. They declare Jesus to be the son of God. They wouldn't have graced a church in their life. And yet they're the ones who recognize Jesus as God. They nail it. And since they are right, it makes all the people who mocked Jesus look extra stupid. Anyway, even though he was deserted by his disciples in his final hours of life, he's cared for by some special women in his death. Verse 55. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These wonderful women remain with Jesus even through his darkest moments. And we'll hear more about them on Sunday morning. But now we read about the special treatment of Jesus' body. Because normally crucified bodies were treated like rubbish on a tip. Literally. Whatever was left of the bodies after the birds and animals had got to them were just chucked on the rubbish heap. That's what was supposed to kind of happen to Jesus' body because he got crucified and that's the way it works. But even though he died the most undignified death, it turns out his burial saw his body treated with some respect. Verse 57, as evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body and Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. And then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. Jesus was buried with dignity, which is actually what we also read in Isaiah 53. Did you see it before? He had done no wrong, verse 9, and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. There it is there. And it turns out this grave was locked shut with a huge stone, and that's the end of Good Friday. But then we read about this on the Saturday, verse 62. The next day, on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. Uh, no, it's the Sabbath, and the leading priests break the Sabbath. And here's what they do. 63. They told him, 
Sir, we remember what that deceiver once said when he was still alive. After three days I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. Because if that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. <laughs> Pilate replied, Okay, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. And so now the tomb is sealed and so is the fate of Jesus, it seems. Until, well, of course, you need to come back on Sunday to find out. But spoiler alert, that tomb doesn't stay shut very long. And you know, that's good news, isn't it? In fact, it's one of the many bits of good news that come from Good Friday. Hopefully you've seen why Good Friday is good. I mean, one reason is that it's the day when we see how good Jesus really is. A number of times people said, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. All through Good Friday... Jesus is good, but better than that, he's, he's innocent, of course, more accurate. And it's only because he was good that he could take the punishment for everyone else who wasn't, and that's everyone in this room. Second reason that Good Friday is good is because it means we no longer need to fear the anger of God, because God gave it all to Jesus already. And it doesn't get any gooder than that. But there's another reason it's Good Friday, I reckon, and that's because everything came to plan. It was all plan A, and everything went according to God's good plan. Good Friday is good. But it's only good for those who personally follow Jesus. If you're just watching from the sideline, keeping a distance then you'll miss out. It's only by personally following Jesus that Good Friday becomes good for you. It's only by personally following Jesus that Jesus' death will take away God's punishment from you. But the good news is all it takes to say all it takes is you need to say sorry to Jesus for your rebellion. And to ask him to be your loving ruler. And if you do that, then today will be the best Good Friday you could ever experience. Is today the day where it'll be your best Good Friday ever? We're going to sing about the power of the cross.